Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Independent Life Podcast. Wow, kablam, kablooey. I am so happy to just be coming fresh out of a conversation with Sarah Cattleman-Lento. I'm probably massacring her name, and I apologize, Sarah. Uh, but Sarah, Sarah is a, a person that I have been intersecting with and collaborating with for well over a decade. She and I were connecting when we were in school and graduate school and and, and getting out in the community and doing public health initiatives in sync with one another. Sarah has, uh, and I have both since graduated, and now each of us are executive directors. I'm over here at the Center for Independent Living, and she's the executive director for the Area Health Education Centers. Area Health Education Centers do so much programming in terms of uh, you know trying to promote health in the state of Florida, and for all Floridians, there's like 10 AHEC, Area Health Education Centers, uh, throughout state of Florida. And they also really promote the learning of pre-health professionals, whether they're medical doctors, nurses, occupational therapy, uh, PAs, PTs, uh, anyone going into, in, into the, uh, the health fields, uh, they work with them in, to get hands-on experience uh, in, in, in meeting with people in real settings uh, to, to better get to know them, taking them out of the classrooms, get them hands-on experience, and working with people who are experiencing health inequities. And along the way, they teach them health literacy, cultural competencies, what the social determinants of health are. And in this episode, we talk a lot about that. We also talk about Sarah's personal uh, experiences with disability herself, and also what she's learned in terms of serving people with disabilities through AHEC and other kinds of experiences uh, that she has. We talk about overcoming uh, shame related to disability, um, we talk about how to the importance of uh, navigating the healthcare system and, and what it can be in terms of the challenges for people with disabilities, but why it's so very important and how to address it. And then we really get into a focus of many of the recent podcasts is about community. Uh, Sarah is an adjunct professor at the University of Florida in the College of Public Health and Health Professions, and she teaches a course called Community-Based Participatory Research. And the, the heart of it is, is like, how do we and uh, you know, engage a community. How do we uh, get their trust? How do we mobilize them? For them, the community, to to really be in the driver's seat uh, to to identify what their needs are and to develop programs or policies to meet those needs and to evaluate the needs and sustain those efforts. And so, it really has a lot of focus on you know how we empower communities. So we really get into um, you know these kind of you know, uh, the intervention of, of community and, and how it really is an upstream approach to solving a lot of the downstream challenges that we have in terms of promoting the health of a community. I find this conversation to be very rich and important to have because people with disabilities are living shorter, sicker lives from preventable diseases. And um, while it's important for uh, all of us as individuals who have disabilities to do what we can within our power to, to promote our own health, mobilizing our community. And now more than ever, especially since the pandemic, I, I, I find is, is truly one of the um, most important solutions that we can have. And Sarah gives us a lot of great wisdom and advice on how to exactly do that. If you're a longtime podcast uh, listener, part of the Independent Life Nation, you may remember Sarah, and we'll link up the episode here where her and I uh, delivered a presentation to the Florida Department of Health's health inequity collaboration. Uh, there were several hundred participants in that. It was wonderful. We talked about tobacco cessation 
uh, among people with uh, disabilities. So we'll link that up in the uh, show notes here. But I bring you a second time performance from Sarah. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Independent Life Podcast. I'm so excited to have Sarah on with us. And you are somebody, Sarah, that I've been wanting to get into a one-on-one conversation with for a while. I know you and I did do a podcast together. We had recorded, if you remember, I think it was a year or two years ago. Yeah, I think so. It's a time warp to me, but uh, wasn't that with the Florida Department of Health, Health Equity? It was. Like collaboration and there was a few hundred people and we talked about smoking cessation and disability. Is that right? Yep. I think that's right. That's good. Good memory, Tony. I do remember that. It felt like that was a long time ago. So yeah. That's why I felt like I was going to say last summer, but I'm like, is that two summers? No, I think it's two. I know it was during the COVID time. It was during COVID. I do remember that. Yeah. We had a really good... um, uh, turnout, turnout that uh, health equity uh, with the Florida Department of Health. And yep. that was awesome. So so I'm saying all that to say you're a second time um, onto the podcast, but really first time that you and I are just going to have a direct conversation with each other. And so for those that might not have heard that podcast or um, know anything about you, if you didn't mind, maybe um, giving us a, you know, a kind of brief history of Sarah, um, <laughs> especially maybe because we're going to talk a lot about what you do in terms of public health. But maybe, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, how you got into the area of health and why it's important to you and where you've landed with it. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, uh, when I was younger, I was really inspired by my dad. He has always been in health and um, specifically dentistry. Um, We moved to Florida in 96 and he became the dean of the dental school at UF and has really just for his whole career in life have. pushed for and advocated for dental health for the underserved and rural populations and special populations like folks with disability. Um, And so I was really inspired by that. And I thought I wanted to go into like health policy, specifically health lobbyist. And then I just was like, that makes me go to law school. And I just, reading is a lot for me. So (laughs) I, um, I went to Flagler College for my undergrad and recently discovered public health and the master's of public health degree when I graduated. So I came to uh-huh. UF for my master's way back in 09. Um, and it just kind of started there. While I was in school, I said, I really want to start working in the field that I'm uh, interested in and kind of pursuing. So I started working at the health department in tobacco prevention. Um, and I worked there for a few years um, while I was in school. And then I met somebody at AHEC and she's like, I'm leaving, I think you should apply for the position. I applied and was very lucky to get the position. So I started here in 2011 as the tobacco program manager. And then in 2015, our executive director, Marilyn Mesh, um, retired and I applied for the position and was very honored to get that position. And so I've been in the position of executive director um, for since 2015. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think public health is sort of in my a little bit in my blood, actually, you know, I'm just thinking about what my dad does, what my family kind of represents and kind of fights for. um, And it just to my core and and what my current family fights for. I I met my wife in school getting public health. So we kind of both are in this not only personally, but professionally. That's awesome. 
So Flagler College in St. Augustine? Yeah, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. That was it. like I, an amazing college. And... Yeah, it was It was great. I, you know, I was a small school for me, which was great. Um, I had a learning disability growing up. So really kind of not being in a classroom of like 300 students was overwhelming to me. And I was a resident advisor for a while. So I was able right. to live on campus. Uh, it's it just the culture of it. It was, um, it was a liberal arts school. So I think I, it kind of, matched what I wanted to pursue. And I got a sociology and um, political science dual degree because um, I kind of wanted to mix the policy with the social side of things. And it it, um, it really was a fantastic thing for me. It led me to where I am now. Awesome. Well, um, where where do you think like your father's inspiration to, to serve people uh, um, with health inequities and, and especially what an important area in terms of uh, like dental health and dental mm -hmm. care, uh, big need to this day uh, that's going on. But, you know, since you got your inspiration from him, like where do, where do you feel like like that drove him? What, what was like really driving him in that I, area? You know, Tony, that's a really great question. And I think I'm going to ask him that because I don't know if he and I have ever really had that direct yeah. conversation. But I, I do think it was um he had a dad who um, he was he grew up in New York, um, Italian family, and he had a dad who was a business owner and really, I think, showed the importance of hard work and um, uh, and what it takes to kind of create a business from the ground. So I think that hard work and ambition drove from him. And then I think right. when he was younger, his brother went into pediatric medicine and he went into pediatric dentistry. So I think that that they were kind of encouraged to look into the medical field or the health field, really. Um, but even when my dad was uh, my dad was in the military as a dentist, um, I remember a story he used to tell me about. He used to provide care to um, uh, in Texas, where we lived, um, to immigrants coming in, and he would provide care to people who wouldn't want to touch them. He provided care to the people who were um, HIV positive, who dentists back then didn't want to touch them. Right. I, I just think it was in his, I, I want to assume it was in his nature. And he kind of, um, I, I don't know, it was just, you know, and my mother was always the supportive wife of helping him pursue his academic professional um, degree and also, um, you know, pursuing the movement of him becoming here the dean at UF, so. Wow, what a what a what a great inspiration! I'm, I'm even if you don't know where it necessarily came from, uh, I'm glad you caught what he has. Uh, that's a good thing, and, and I hope yeah. other people catch uh, what you now have. And uh, so, so you mentioned um, you yourself having a learning disability. How how did yeah. you um, you know, come to find that out, and how have you um, adapted and accommodated to it? Because I like I know you said like you know you're you're you went to Flagler College mm -hmm. and got your master's in public health. Um, you're an adjunct professor, you're executive director mm -hmm. for the area health education centers, AHEC. Um, so you're doing a lot of different things. Um, so so talking from your own personal experience with a disability, how have you been yeah. able to integrate? Yeah, so I got diagnosed with um, attention deficit disorder and dyslexia in second grade. Um, and I specifically remember my teacher, Miss Duffy from New Jersey, teaching, bringing, to my, bringing attention to my parents, the fact that I, I um, may have a disability. And so I got tested and, you know, I, I went on medication and my mom always used to tell me that um, it's not that you, you just have a different way of learning. It's just a different style of learning. And 
some people need X, Y, and Z to help them. And you need, you need this to help you. Um, and it was sort of something that she taught me not to be embarrassed about it, but also speak up when I needed, we needed to access the services that were provided to me. So I got like extended time on things. Um, I got a private area to do, to do testing. Um, and so that really helped. And, and I, I kept that through college. It helped me through college as well. Um, in college, I felt like I was a bit like, I'm past this, I'm good. And then I recognized I still needed some support and just kind of that, um, that putting that shame away and kind of being okay with mm. the fact that it's the disability doesn't go away necessarily. Um, and then as I've gotten older, I've just kind of like, it's just part of who I am. Like I say things sometimes backwards or I don't say things in the right order. And I think that's tied to my dyslexia, but it just, it's, I call it me. It's like, that's who I am. It's just my personality. It's my quirkiness when I do things and do public speaking and that kind of thing. And I don't necessarily put it out there that I, I was, I had a disability growing up. Sure. Um, but if it's in the right time and place, like today's conversation, I definitely am open to talking about it. Right. So, so um, learning differently uh, is yeah. what I've heard a lot of people prefer mm -hmm. you know, LDV and uh, you know, kind of acronymed as. Um, so, so you, you, you talked about, um, you know, thinking that you got over it, but kind of didn't and had to put the shame away. How did you yeah. put the shame away? Um, I think I realized it was a professor that came to me and she was like, hey, listen, you, you know what you're talking about in class you you are actively engaged in conversation but when you take this test you like don't it's like you don't even know what you're what's happening like your your answers are not matching what's happening um and she really was just like you know has this been something that you struggled with your whole life type of thing and i sort of said that to her and she's like you need we um we are here to help you with that. We don't want this to be a hindrance. We don't want this to be a detriment to your success in school. This is something that is part of who you are. Let us work with you on this. Um, and I just think it that conversation with her uh, really, to me, um, just switched something to me to say like, okay, you're right. I, I, don't, I shouldn't be afraid to ask for help and I shouldn't be ashamed to say that I need extra help or extra time. Because it can be intimidating when you're in a classroom yes. with other people, they're all taking the multiple choice chess and they're taking it within five minutes and you're like, I don't know what's happening right now. Right. Um, and so that really helped. And it, and I, and I also learned that there were other students in my class that had disabilities that were accessing services. And it wasn't just me being alone on this island type of thing as well. So that, that, that's gotta be helpful too. I yeah. Know. You know, like you're not the only one and it can feel like it, I think, at times when, you know, we're not talking about it. Like you said, you don't bring it out in the open unless it's the context like this might might merit that. Yeah. And, um, you know, one, one of the things when I was working with students at the University of Florida who have learning uh, differences um, and, and, and uh, a project that we had, um, they, they would often talk about like the same thing you're saying. And they they would also add that, you know, they didn't want to take a. Um, you know, the the accommodations because like their their peers would see it as like kind of gaining an advantage yes, it's super yes. competitive at uf you know you, you know, so like even though you might be friends you're kind of competing to maybe get into grad school you know the yep. same grad school and they only have so many slots and it might to them you know because they they again the disability is invisible and they may think that you're copying disability in order to get a competitive academic advantage and 
I remember that being a barrier uh, as well for them for reaching out for help. Yeah. You know, shame's shame's a real thing, you know, and and it I just for shame from guilt and uh, you know those kind of things. Where to me, it, it is like this paralyzing emotion where mm -hmm. we don't take action or that can kind of you know snuff our light out a little bit. So oh, absolutely, I, I, I appreciate you sharing that because like I, I sure yeah, I mean like I I know I've struggled with uh, shame myself and you know kind of being embarrassed. I guess would be even a lighter you know kind of emotion than shame. But, um, you know, that definitely has prohibited me from me from mm -hmm. disclosing or, or or being open about it at times when I should be or let alone asking for help. And, you know, I think that is something that all, all of us that have disabilities will have to, you know, encounter and, and, and learn mm -hmm. how we can each uh, overcome it. Yeah. Talk to me about, um, so you're uh, the executive director for the Area uh, Health Education Centers. Mm -hmm. uh, Maybe um, talk a little bit about what, what that is for folks that don't know what it is. Sure. Um, and then if you can, you know, you've gone and talked about your personal experiences with disability. Talk about how you've encountered disability professionally, whether it is at AHEC or you have such a wide yeah. range of uh, public health experiences. Maybe sure. you know, kind of paint that picture. Sure. So I'll um I'll first talk about AHEC in general and then move to the disability part. So AHEC stands for, like you said, Tony Area Health Education Center. And we're actually a, a national model that was formed out of the federal government in the 70s. And the intent was to kind of address workforce shortages in our rural and underserved communities. And so we receive funding every year from HRSA to help directly with that. And the original model is um, a medical school in the state of Florida, it gets funding and then centers get funding, which are the community-based part. And the intent is for the three, the two of them to work together to do three things. The first historical kind of reference is something called a pipeline program, where we work with our younger adult population, kids in high school, to get them interested in going into the field of health, public health, health medicine, dentistry, all kind of the, the, the big umbrella of what it's called. Um, while they're in school, the second bucket is we help them with clinical rotations, summer camp programs, hands-on experience while they're in school to become a medical professional or a healthcare professional or on the way to become a healthcare professional. And then the third is continuing education, keeping practicing medical licensed providers abreast of different topics um, on hot button issues or hot topics um, relative to what's currently happening in our current healthcare system or public health system. We, um, so the, every, every state is different. Um, there's some states that have one program office and multiple centers, and then there's some states that have multiple program offices and multiple centers. Um, our state, of course, Florida being unique, has 10 centers with five program offices. So they're all at the five medical schools, FSU, UF, USF, Nova Southeastern, and UM. Um, and then the 10 centers. And we cover all 12 counties in North Central Florida. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, all 67 counties in the state of Florida. Um, and part of our, so AHEC, our AHEC and our state of Florida doesn't really do, uh, uh, the pipeline funding has has definitely shifted gears a little bit. So we're not able to do as much of that direct health education to high school students and the younger adults, but we do have a program for current students called the Scholars Program. Um, it's for students who are going to school to become a healthcare professional. It's a two-year program 
with 40 hours of on community-based work and 40 hours of didactic learning on different topics, such as like health equity, health, liaise, um, health literacy, social determinants of health, cultural competency, that kind of thing. Um, and so that that's one of our programs. The state of Florida used to get funding to do more of our core mission, um, but lost that funding during the recession. And then we were gracious and lucky to get funding from the state through the tobacco settlement dollars to do um, tobacco cessation. So we provide, we're, we're funded by the Bureau of Tobacco Free Florida, all 10 count centers and program offices get funding. We all do the same thing, which is Group cessation. So we help folks who are quit who want to quit tobacco. Um, we provide them counseling, uh, behavioral health support, um, and then nicotine replacement therapy. And then we also train healthcare students on how to talk to future patients about tobacco because they don't really get that knowledge or about the dangers of tobacco in the body. Mm. And then we work with healthcare providers in clinics to help them set up an uh, it's called systems change. Help them identify tobacco users and set up a referral system to refer them to the services through Tobacco-Free Florida. And then we also train those, train those healthcare professionals on how to talk to their patients about tobacco. Um, so that's one of our programs at, at Swanee River. Another program that we have is our Health Insurance Marketplace Navigator Program. And that program really is helping folks get um, insurance through the Affordable Care Act. Um, which is like a whole nother podcast that we could probably do, Tony. That, that um, sounds pretty comprehensive, yeah. trying to navigate through the healthcare yeah. system and insurance. Like, um, right yes. Like, wow. And then the our other department at Swanee River is called our Meeting and Association Services. So this is a little bit of a unique kind of um, offering that our AHEC does uh, compared to other AHECs. But years ago, we got into the business of association management. And what that means is we manage the day-to-day -day business and operations for different associations, but they're all health associations. Um, so we happen to be the managing entity for the Florida Public Health Association and the Florida Rural Health Association. And we also manage a national organization. Um, it's very specific, but it's, it's rheumatologists. It's called US Sonar. And then we also help with the managing of the national AHEC organization. Um, so we are kind of a very unique mixed bag organization of things that we're doing, but we're all centered towards our core mission of workforce development and community health and health outcomes and stuff like that. Um, and then to the disability part. So that, that's a great question. Well, let, let, let me get to the disability part. So I just want to recap what I heard you say. Yeah. Because, I, you know, I come from health education and behavior, that major at the University of Florida. And I was constantly, uh, when I was telling people that weren't in the field, what I, what I was doing, you know, I hesitated on calling health education because like, what I found is most people have this um, stereotype of the uh, physical educator or gym mm -hmm. teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, as a layperson might call them, at a school, uh, holding a basketball, trying to teach about sex ed or something like that. Yeah. Like it was no, like yeah. this, you like know, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And now I was like, man, it's so much more than that. It and like so you just more. listed off like, you know, just things that definitely piqued my interest. You talk about, and what I love is, is like you're, you're training pre-health professionals, whether they're yes. MDs or what, I mean, there's so many fields in health, public health, healthcare to go into about health literacy, the ability to communicate information in a language that people can understand and act on. You're talking about social inequities. So why are certain groups um, 
you know, living shorter, sicker, and lives with less quality of life than other groups? And why is this mm-hmm. with these, you know, usually minority groups and marginalized groups? And, you know, why is that happening? Um, social determinants of health, teaching them about, well, yes, what you do in the clinic is important, but what, what, what happens outside of the clinic in terms of education and yeah. employment and housing and transportation and social supports and mm-hmm. how does that impact their health? And, and a lot, that is the most impactful area uh, when it does come to those health outcomes and how long we live, resiliency, yes. chronic disease and quality of life and, you know, all those other kind of things. And I just love how, like, you know, you're working with pre-health professionals, giving them this side of their educational experience um, in, in addition to what they're getting in, you know, the typical mm-hmm. academic, you know, mm-hmm. curriculum that they may be receiving. And for me, for me, I think it's the most hands-on, practical, service learning, you know, all these other kind of things that you just can't get in the classroom. No, you can't. I just yeah. love that AHEC does this and that you're doing this work. Yeah, thank you. We, I, It's just, it to me, it just makes sense. It clicks because, um, you know, when I, you know, being an adjunct professor at UF, I always tell my students, get out into the field. You know, and the public health degree is an applied degree. You should be graduating and you should have those experiences of what it's like to be doing work in public health. And so I I really strive to them to start volunteering, get involved, intern, get a job, a part-time job, um, try and be connected with what you're about to do um, because you don't have to be a, a master's in public health students to do to work in a public health or a nonprofit, it you know you can um, that's your it's just like the start. It's complementary to what you're learning in the classroom. It's 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 additional, really, not complementary. It's more additional information and training. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I, I just I strive that it's really it's critical. It really is critical. Yeah. yeah so yeah, so so I just wanted to kind of summarize that, and, and you know I didn't even mention yeah. cultural competency. We'll get there. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's that's definitely uh, like so all those buckets, you know, it's just amazing that you're integrating that into their, you know, academic experience. Mm-hmm. And, and I do believe the hands on is really kind of like the applied. Yeah. And it's just wonderful that your program does that. Um. So, yeah. All right. Let's circle back to where you were kind of it's, heading in terms yeah. of, you know, how have you encountered disability through sure. the work that you're doing? Yeah. So, um. Uh, it's both personal and professional too, above and beyond the disability that I was talking about with my yeah. learning disability. So the first encounter that I kind of tapped into disability, I was in school, I was getting my master's in public health and I was in my program planning class and we had to do a, a, a needs assessment. And my group, um, it was Tracy Barnett, who was the teacher and Jamie Pomeranz, who was sort of support person to the, to the, um, to the class, another professor. And my group, Um, selected, I don't know how it came about, but we selected assessing the um, RTI um, bus locations and how accessible they were. And we went around and went around to all of the bus um, stops, measured them, took pictures to identify where the sidewalks were, if the sidewalks had the ability for someone who might be blind to be able to feel um, if there was a safe place, overpass, lighting, all that kind of stuff. And we did this assessment and we presented it in front of the city. And Tony, we partnered with the Center for Independent Living. Um, Yeah, yeah, before I got here. Yeah, Before you got here, yeah. Um, 
And we presented in front of the city and county commissioner about what we found and the changes that the recommended changes that we needed. And that just kind of like started my um, nugget of of our community of, of folks who have a disability. Um, that's where I kind of learned about sort of the people first language, just like little things like that was mm -hmm. I was something that was learning. I was learning in school. Um, and then my I had the fortunate, wonderful time to meet my wife, Lindsay, who has a sister with a disability. And mm -hmm. so not only do I have this sort of the 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 start from school, but now personal connection of having a sister who has a, has a, has a physical disability. Um, I have a cousin who has a, uh, a disability of autism. He's autistic. Mm -hmm. um, I, it just kind of has opened my kind of peripheral vision to like wider and wider to really see this, the day-to-day the -day struggle and challenges um, and the need to you know, one thing that one thing I always do is whenever we go somewhere and we have Janie with us, I am so hyper hyper vigilant about the space that she has to move around in. Mm. Does she is she able to get in safely, comfortably? Um, are the hallways in these restaurants or the sides of this restaurant easy for her to maneuver her chair around? Mm -hmm. um, just those little things, and I just think that. I hate to say this, but we just take it for granted. We take it, we take for granted our ability to walk, see, hear, touch, taste, right. and smell like that, in my opinion. Right. Um, and just experiences of little things. So that just really has touched me in a way to just be more aware of some of the lack, the inequities that are out in our system right now. Um, and the challenges, and I and I think it speaks, Tony, to a whole different, I, I mean, you and I could probably talk about this for hours, but just uh -huh. there, there's this whole other level. So it's not just the mental and physical and emotional toll on a person and that person's family and so, care and support team, but it's also to our, like, how our systems at the state and federal level do not, in my opinion, line up to what they need for people with disabilities. Right. Um, the the challenges with Medicaid, Med waiver, um, the ability to get things, the ability to seek care, just and and the care that's provided at times. Um, uh, yeah, it's just it's another conversation that I think we could totally have. But yeah, no, yeah. It, it's it's very true, and I think it kind of goes back to where you let off. It's like policy, yeah. You know, so you 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 know when we when we look at uh, like what you're just saying there in terms of med waiver and all these other kind of things, it's a lot of policies and funding and where we put the, mm -hmm. you know, these kind of resources mm -hmm. into place. And and kind of like you, you at the top of the, you know, what you were discussing there, you know, working with the local, uh, you know, you know, bus transit uh, mm -hmm. services and uh, an organization, our center before I got here um, on accessibility or mm -hmm. the bus, stops, do they have those easements? You know, do they even have a concrete pad, you know, for yep, people that, 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 yep. you know, to be yep. loaded on and off and, and do the buses themselves, you know, and the drivers and, you know, everything else doing everything that's required um, and, and uh, you know, advocating for those kind of policies. And and I know I do know your work has led to some serious changes, you know, and it, it has helped to involve us more into the paratransit services, mm -hmm. you know, so that 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 has paid off. 
Um, I, I also, uh, so, so I, the policy and disability, and then there's still so much work to be done you know, in so many different areas, whether it's the ADA, yeah, you know, you know, that was really meant, you know, to address some of the, you know, uh, things that go on with the workforce mm -hmm. um, or in public access to, you know, uh, different services, emergency mm -hmm. management, disasters, and yep. like there's still so much work to be done, uh, and let alone navigating the healthcare system. But, um, you know, I, I appreciate you showing, sharing too uh, about your uh, your wife's, is it her her, her sister? Her sister. Mm -hmm. Her sister. Yeah, sister her, and, and like, you know, when you're talking about when you're with her and being out in public and being hyper vigilant, you know, then, you know, you know, that really resonates with me, you know, um, when, uh, when, um, when I accompany somebody that has a disability or someone's accompanying me and they're, they're starting to realize like, oh, they got to tell me about a step in the dark that I might not see, or, you know, these other kind of things and how we can all, all of a sudden the paradigm about how we normally would go to a restaurant by ourselves versus with somebody else, that whole environment changes. You know, yes. from, from 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 that experience, and, and we're 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 looking at you know things a little differently, and you know, in in particular, it, uh, you know, the, the autism community. Um, mm -hmm. When we talk about cultural competency, like there there, it's its own culture, you know, with, yes. with people that have it, uh, parents, guardians, family members, and and others that 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 are with that person. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just returned from a, a a conference called the Family Cafe. Where thousands of families with you know, with people with all kinds of dis disabilities, but certainly autistic, and they have their own culture, and, yes. and I think it's an important culture for for, for people to understand who aren't a, a part of it, because like you know when 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 people who have autism or other disabilities, you know, um, you know when we talk about you know is this an autistically friendly environment or restaurant, mm -hmm. or those other kind of things, like they would probably have a better understanding of why that might be important. You know, to be able to create yes. those kind of spaces uh, that are in there, and um, you know, when 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 you said too, like talking about taking things for granted, like I I think so too. Like even as a you know, when when I came on here to the Center for Independent Living, uh, one of the programs that's offered here is a wheelchair ramp uh, program. So we, mm -hmm. we saw wheelchair ramps in the the homes of people who who need one. You know, they, mm -hmm. they they're in a wheelchair, um, have serious health conditions, and are low income and can't afford one. Mm -hmm. I was um, shocked and continues to still be shocked about how many people are in a situation that need one. Um, you know, our list has, you know, it's been up to hundreds of people um, wow. that, that, that need it. And, you know, we can maybe, you know, do dozens a year and we're still chipping away at it. But like, yeah. I was taken for granted, you know, just the ability to leave my house, to step through that threshold in or out and not think twice about it. Now yeah. I'm like, oh, what a, what a gift I'm able to be able to do that so i think like that's an important thing you know to look into so you said a lot there and i really appreciate yeah, thank you thank you yeah when my wife and i built our most recent house even the first house that we built we specifically requested a zero entry kind of front and or one of the entries be zero entry and our doorways to be wider than the typical door standard doorway um and i just um i was joking with Lindsay the other night about um just when you go and look for homes, most homes don't have those. They have a step up or, you know, one thing actually, Tony, we we're talking about um, vacations, going on vacation with Jamie and finding, you know, Airbnb is doing a good job, not to shout out one company, that's the one yeah. we typically use, yeah. but they basically like, they put ADA um, accessible and like, 
they're now requiring them, or we I've started to see that they're requiring the houses to take pictures that show the actual measurement, show the, the different parts of the home that they are considering as accessible. But there are some homes that they think they, they claim to be accessible and they're just not. You could just tell by the picture. Um, and so I, I just, you know, one of our dreams is if we ever win the lotto is to help build a surplus of homes that are vacation friendly for families to go on, um, right on. who have people who may have a physical disability and need the use of a wheelchair. Um, right. So it, yeah, it's, um, it's just those little things that have just made me more aware of some of the inequities. Yeah, it's smart that you're thinking about, you know, those kind of entries into your house ahead of time. And, yep. and, you know, we work with developers and say, hey, it'd be great if you, you know, as you're building this house, you know, where it, it won't cost a remodel to widen doors or put exactly. the into the bathroom. Yep. You know, anticipate that being the need ahead of time. So yeah. you know, it, it, it can be <laughs> built in up front. For sure. That could be so costly, uh, you know, down the road. So it's great you're thinking about that. So, so uh, given given uh, your personal and professional experiences with disabilities, what are, what are, what's your take on some of the, the the top issues, you know, that 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 face people uh, with disabilities, and uh, what do you think we should do about it? Oh yeah, that's um. There's so much, it, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a loaded question. A bit. I yeah. think the I think the first thing that comes to my mind is. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind, I think is going to be, um, I would say like the issues that we're having with, with Medicaid. So when you have a disability, most people are able to get onto Medicaid, um, but you have to have this waiver and you have to have proof and just, there are thousands of people on this med waiver right now. And I, I just think the lack of funding to help reduce that list to help people be able to get onto Medicaid um, and just some of the the nuances and red tape that they have to go through mm -hmm. is just really, I understand why it's there, but some of it just doesn't make any sense um, in my opinion. And I'll give you an example. Some people I've been told, and this is just kind of secondhand knowledge, Tony, so let me just brace that, just say that as a kind of caveat. But I've been told people who have a physical disability that they were born with still have to show proof of the need to have a wheelchair every certain number of years. And that just to me, it's like, why, you know, and they have to go through this waiting period and this approval process and this paperwork. And it just seems so challenging. So I just wish we could streamline the uh, process to apply, maintain status and continue to get services without this rigor more of reapplying, reapplying, reapplying every certain period of life that this person is growing up with and with their disability, if that makes sense. It makes a total sense. You know, just to, to, to summarize what I heard is like, you know, for people with disabilities to, to get the, the type of health insurance coverage that is merited and, and uh, entitled to them, it, it, it's a bureaucratic nightmare to navigate. and, and yes. to, and for me, you know, one of the things is like to, to understand the process, like you need a graduate level degree. 
Like really, yes. really it's a complicated process. It, you need it to is so complicated. It, it, yes. it is not, and again, like, you know, when we talk about in the general population, everybody, you know, yeah. that the average, you know, literacy levels is around middle school. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and literally this requires almost a graduate level education to understand mm -hmm. the system. And then to navigate that system, yes. through all the, like even if you have that graduate level understanding, it's not an easy system to navigate. No. You come up against walls. It takes times. There's delays. You could be hitting dead ends. And um, like you said, the, like the, the redundancies within the system, you know, even though you've gone through an approval and a verification and a documentation process, that thing starts all over again down the road somehow. Like, so like a lot of these, you know, kind of things that are just like, layer upon layer upon layer yes. of complications um and, and just yeah and just and really also just the the amount of time and time who has to time? me to me also it's for those people who have a certain level of income some of these things they have they can use additional income to support things right. where our folks who have a from a lower ses i i, can't, I just can't imagine that's like an added challenge and it just, it shouldn't be. Um, but just also, yeah. So, I mean, like I know families and friends who live in other states and what they have access to compared to unfortunately our state. And it just, it really is, um, it's sad to hear how we are in the lower percentile of funding support, all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And it just, it's, um, that's my biggest, I think that's the biggest importance to me is, is, is fighting for better, a better system yeah. and more funding. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 It, it's complicated. Give me your take on, on what you think about um, in terms of uh, health literacy as it pertains to people with disabilities, you know? Um, so again, you know, the ability to communicate and understand mm -hmm. in a language that people can understand and act on um, people with disabilities tend to have lower health literacy mm -hmm. uh, skills. And when I think about like a healthcare provider communicating to a person with a disability, you know, they could be deaf and, you know, so you need a sign language interpreter, mm -hmm. ideally in person, if they're there or VRI machines, sometimes they're not there for whatever reason that might be. Yep. But then I also think about like, um, you know, your, is it your sister-in-law? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, her, you know, having autism or any kind of intellectual disability and the ability to understand like information and that, you know, let alone navigating these complicated, you know, healthcare systems. So, so what are, what are some of your thoughts regarding, you know, it, whether it's teaching pre-health professionals health literacy or yeah. what, what it might be in, in relation to people with disabilities? Yeah, I think this is another added layer. So, um, so my sister-in-law doesn't have autism, but my cousin's son does. And, um, I, his autism is pretty severe to where he's somewhat nonverbal. So for him, I think they, um, um, their health literacy, I, but my cousin is a nurse. So I think that does help a little bit with the medical side of things. Um, for my sister-in-law, I, I think health literacy is a challenge. And I think um, a lot of times what I've seen, not just with my sister-in-law, but with other people with disabilities, is that providers just focus on the disability and sometimes forget the other aspects that could be related to that person's health and well-being. Good old medical um, model. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, let's talk about somebody's, what are they eating? What type of level of activity? Does it mean that they, you know, if they 
have a physical disability, it may not mean that they may not be able to be physically able to do some exercise or something along those lines. Um, but just kind of focusing on the quality of life outside of that disability, if that if that makes sense. That to me, I think is sometimes a challenge that we have. Working with providers who treat individuals with physical disability or um, in a behavioral health setting, a lot of times they just, they're like, oh, smoking is okay for them. That's their coping mechanism. That's helping them through X, Y, and Z. It is, they have bigger fish to fry. They have bigger things that we need to focus on. And I just sometimes want to pull my hair out because I'm like, no, smoking is so bad. <laughs> Does it matter if you Still are top killer, right? X, Y, and Z? Yes, it's the number one preventable cause of death and disease in this country. It's so for me, I'm like, it doesn't, to me, it's, um, it's still important to bring it up. It's still important to ask. It's okay to ask. And you can ask in a right way or in, in, a, in a less threatening way. Um, it's, it should be addressed to every single person. Um, and, and regardless of who that person is or what they look like or what, you know, who they are, it doesn't matter. They should be asked about tobacco. Um, because we, we know people of certain communities and populations have higher rates of tobacco and disability community is one of them. PTSD, so, almost a 50%, you know, yes. is the general population around hovering around 20% smoking? Yeah, a little bit lower than that. We're, we're, we're making lower. some headway on that. Um, the vape product, vaping has not helped at all though. It's like taking us a little bit backwards. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a whole nother conversation, Tony on vape, but honestly it's, you know, yeah. it's not, we don't know enough about it to recognize if it's safe or not the regulation is is up and down so um for us we encompass it under the frame of tobacco and we really just try and get people to not use any form of tobacco and help them go through the but, but, but certainly uh certain diagnoses of disabilities have greater than the general population's rate of tobacco use yes sure. Oh, and for sure. We'll link up. We'll link up the episode you and I did with the Florida Department. Yeah, that would be great. That would be about great. specifically smoking cessation and uh, people with disabilities. So, yep. so one one thing I, I do want to get to you on because I think this is where you and I really um, have a lot of shared interest in terms of public health is the importance of community. Yes. You know, so, so, so like we can in, we can intervene at the individual level, the interpersonal level. Yeah, we can do policy. We can do the environment like you did with uh, you know the the bus systems and stuff like that. But then there's the community, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so talk to me about what, what you think the importance of, of community is in public I, health. I, I think it is so, it, it is what is public health. I mean, public health is not about the individual. It's about the, in my community, in my opinion, it, I'm going to use community in like a broad sense, but it's about the social structure, political community system that impacts public health. I mean, they're all tied to public health. It is, it, part of it is individual behavior, but individual behavior could be so dependent on their environment, their community, their social structure, their system structure, all of that. Um, so I, community is really important in terms of ensuring that when we are talking in public health lens, when we are talking about issues, Addressing them at a community level, a systemic community level, is I think could make a huge impact or burden on um, on our on our on our individual health and our system in general. 
Tony, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm, I'm not going to get it exactly right. It's a little embarrassing that I don't have it exactly right. But there's this new image out there, what seems new to me. Um, I haven't been in school for a long time, of the upstream and downstream. And it's about, a, it shows a river and it has mm -hmm. individual. You might have actually shown this in my class one time. I don't know if it was. I don't think so, but I'm, I'm familiar with the upstream downstream analogy. Go for it, though. Yeah. So basically like what, you know, instead of addressing things downstream, let's address things upstream because that's what's causing things, you know, and I just, um, it's a, just, to me, it's a, it's a fascinating, it's a great visual to recognize that it's not just what they're dealing with right now. What is causing them, what they're reacting to something. What is that reaction being caused by? Let's address that versus let's addressing how they're reacting type of thing. It's something with like the concept of prevention. If we can prevent things, that should be our focus. And that's what public health is about. And there are communities that are actively starting to look into addressing things at a community level for the long term. And that right. example is age-friendly communities. They are addressing communities to be age-friendly as individuals get older. How can we mm -hmm. be a more age-friendly community? And I think that should be done with all walks of life. I'm, I'm, yeah. So, oh yeah, in, in Florida, that uh, you know, aging in place is is a, mm -hmm. is a you know, kind of a, a push and an initiative. And yeah, so so the way what really helped me is um, someone explained the upstream downstream uh, through a metaphor of you know there was a, a couple people you know that was next to a stream a river and they see this kid floating down the stream drowning yeah. you know and then one of them you know jumps in to save them you know the other throws them the rope that's on shore and pulls them both in. Then all of a sudden there's two kids and they do the same thing. So one of them jumps in to go after the kid, the other's on shore, throws in the rope, pulls them in. Then there's three kids go through yeah. the same thing, four kids, five. They kept going through all this. And then all of a sudden, you know, as more kids keep floating down, you know, the person that throws the rope, you know, drops the rope and starts walking upstream. And the person that's about to jump in to save the kids is like, where are you going? He's like, I'm going to go tackle the person who's throwing these kids in. That's you know, exactly upstream. right. Yep. You know, and 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 so, uh, you know, for, for me, I, I do think community is that, you know, kind of an upstream approach on how we can address it. Because as Centers for Independent Living, you know, we, we do very well um, serving individuals, accessing utilization, and that's such an important lane. Downstream is super important. But then, you know, we're, we're also, you know, trying to really reach out to our community, engage our community, mobilize our community. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and since, you know, the, the pandemic, um, you know, things have kind of shifted. I, I've sensed in our community and our uh, and its level of, you know, unity within the community, and uh, and so we see this as a really great time to reset. So, so I know you, um, you know, have have done some work with community before, but what 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 are some some of the you know key things that are needed um, to engage um, to, to to gain the trust of the community, help mobilize the community. Um, in order to to address some of those upstream issues? Yeah, I, that's a, a really great question. I think it's something that we don't talk about enough, especially in the lens of public health. But I, I think the number one thing is we need the community to be involved. And I think we can't force that community to be involved. The community should be actively wanting to be involved um, to some degree. Um, I think that there's a need to find out what the community needs. And I, I think a lot of times we see a community and we can pull statistics from that community. And those statistics are probably 
what we know is going to be sh was shown within that community low ses low health health um high school degree diploma just based off of all of these different data points that we can pull it's a community that needs help okay and i think with out of such good intention and out of the traditional in my opinion public health approach we go into that community provide them a service provide them an intervention provide them do research do analysis do evaluation do needs assessments and we expect it more than likely to work or to get better or to improve and i think our fall our mishap is a lot of times is that have we even did we just invite ourselves into that community or did the community invite us mm. um you know, where where is the community's buy-in to what we're doing? Do they recognize this as a problem? Do they even understand the data? Do they understand why we're doing what we're doing? Um, and so I think in order to gain, I think trust is such a huge part of our community. And I think it needs to be something that we are thinking about as we are approaching that community. And then us as public health professionals, as we approach this community, what connection do we have to this community? Is anybody from this community mm -hmm. or a member, a representative of this community? Does right. um, anyone have a direct connection or um, uh, community cultural connection to this community? Um, and if we don't, that's okay. But have we recognized what those are so that we can ensure that those are being identified, voiced, and brought into like brought into this bigger picture um, right. and that's tony what i'm talking about i think is as you probably know more than me um, with your years of experience that's really hard to do but i yeah. think it's it there's there's small things that we can do in terms of to ensure that we are moving in that right direction when when we do public health work yeah yeah no you 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 gave up some real good things i i absolutely think um you know so getting the trust of a community um it, it it takes time it takes uh you know showing the community uh that you care instead of selling them like hey uh, you know uh, and talking a good game um through my experience you know that that that's definitely what, what i've learned um and i and i think having representation uh, of people in the community um with with those efforts to reach out to the community is very important i think that's one of the things that are built into centers for independent living that that i think has been just a genius up front you know they you know, for a long time now, decades before like community centered or patient centered or veteran centered or, or you know, was a thing, you know, they said, you know, all centers for independent living have to have at least over half of the staff, half of the board have to have I love that. I do. Yeah, I it, love it, it was like well ahead of its time, I think, you know, in terms yeah. of, you know, being able to do that. So I think that's important for sure. And you know, one of the hurdles that, that I found in, in whether it's reaching out to the community of people with disabilities or my past experiences and reaching out to low-income neighborhoods that are minority demographics, and uh, is that um, because uh, people are in a situation where they're experiencing some of these inequities, whether it's you know poverty, you know just poverty, you know the the, the challenges of being in poverty, um, you know, and, and and the other you know things that kind of accompany that, it, it it's almost like. Um, they're in survival mode, many people, and, and let alone like can then, you know, think of having, you know, to, 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 to be a, somebody that's going to participate in, in engaging and mobilizing and being part of this initiative is kind of like, 
you know, they're, 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 so I found that 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 can be one of the challenges. And, yes. and one of the things that 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 I found to be useful is if you can find a stakeholder, a champion, Absolutely. you know, somebody that that, that somehow, some way, um, is able to 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 uh, you know still be in the community and and be able to navigate those challenges, and yet have that capacity to be able to uh, want to mobilize and do something mm-hmm. is important. Um, but but like I guess like where where I where I uh, maybe you have some insights is how do we grow more stakeholders and champions to be in that space when people in the community are just like trying to get by minute by minute hour by hour day by day. Yeah, that's a good question, Tony. And I I struggle with an answer because I think it's something that we oh, struggle with too. all the time. I think there are communities that have people in there who care about their community, and it's just finding out who they are, and seeing if there's already action happening in those communities. And I think a lot of times stuff is happening from a grassroots level and there is a sense of community and a togetherness within those within that. And how could you, how can we approach that, ask to be part of that mm-hmm. and and provide more insight, knowledge, information. And I think that's one thing, a lot of it is, you know, this takes time. It's also very fluid. It yeah. takes a long time long long time um, yeah and, and you know yeah. i know with uh with your tobacco cessation do you do the motivational interviewing mm-hmm. you know stages of change yes you know, i, I almost see like communities you know so, so stages yes. of change right like that's what is that refresh my memory it's pre-contemplation contemplation, contemplation. planning action mm-hmm. maintenance is that yep. so five stages there um yeah. And so I almost see communities maybe, you know, that could be like looked at in terms of uh, like readiness to change or mobilize. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. are they pre-contemplation, not even thinking about, hey, we need to get together and address some of the things in the community. Mm-hmm. Are they in contemplation? Yeah, we're really thinking about point. it, you know, and there's interest, like you said, um, or are they already in a planning stage somehow, some way people yeah. are kind of getting together and or are they taking action, just starting out some initiative or or maintaining yeah, so so I wonder if that would also be a good way of you know going into communities or seeing communities you know in terms of mobilizing them. Yeah, yeah, it um, it's a really really great kind of metaphor too, Tony. I love that idea of looking at it because it's, and we all individually move through those with all decisions that we're making in a way. But I think communities and systems, you know, are how are they going through those systems and are they? Yeah. Yeah, I love the idea of using stages of change for the community as a way to kind of see where they're at i think that's a great idea and yeah, it's a great, kind of yeah. Them where they are. yeah 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 exactly so so one of the things in terms of uh you know mobilizing a community uh that that in addressing you know community related issues is the use of organizations like ourselves so so a lot of times you know we'll get approached by say emergency management professionals you know about hey we want to make sure that we're reaching the community people with disabilities we see you as an organization that serves them you know how can we reach them there's other community-based organizations that serve other types of community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so organizationally, you know, how we can all come together as organizations and say, you know, hey, we've got reach in this community, but not this other community where we also may have some members and vice versa. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You and I have kind of been part of, uh, you know, kind of, in, uh, uh, you know, an organic interest of different organizations, agencies. Mm-hmm you know, um, coming together to see, you know, like, hey, you know, we all have a shared interest 
and you know, addressing health inequities. We're all working with marginalized populations. We all have different resources and assets to bring to bear. We're also lacking some that others may have yeah. uh, in addressing this. We, there's probably overlap. So I serve people with disabilities. This organization serves minority populations, low SES. We have overlap. Um, and, and so you and I are part of this like initiative where we have this multi-organizational mm-hmm. uh, you know, group that has met, you know, and trying to organically find our way through like, hey, is there a space here for us to kind of come along? What are, what are some of your thoughts on, on that level of uh, engagement, organization, its utility, um, its challenges, barriers, facilitators, in terms of like organizations being able to collaborate, come together, yeah, really, you know, be, be, be put to use and addressing community level. Uh, For sure. I- I think it's so important to do that as much as you possibly can, but I do think that there are several barriers that kind of help. It, the desire is there, but I just think the execution can sometimes be challenging. I think sometimes the barriers are like different funding priorities. So, um, and just funding in general, do we have the funding to be able to partner together on this and work together on this and cross collaborate? Um, and, and I think just the ability to kind of uh, merge things and work with together can sometimes be challenging with two organizations due to, like I said, the funding, the priority of the funding, staffing, that kind of thing. But one thing I think that can come out of it is exactly what you talked about, Tony, which is every community, every organization I think does have a niche uh, of a focus or an expertise, something along those lines. And tapping into those resources for training for um hey can you check can you look over this and see what you think about this am i am i using the right language am i being x y and z um does this feel like it's a it's gonna be fit or could i work with you to talk with some of your community members about this initiative that we want to do to get their perspective i think just the connection of being able to tap into one another and those kind of levels of feedback, education, um, review, structural support, I think is one thing I, I, I think is a, is a good thing that could come out of it and is a beauty that comes out of it. Um, and I think the barriers are just kind of working through some of those structures of budgetary needs, staffing needs, priorities, service area, community. Um, but I, I think that's one thing that makes Gainesville, I think, really offer, wonderful is that we have a sense of this social support community and network mm-hmm. that yeah. tends to really work very well together. There's not this territorial issue or challenge um, or yeah. like, this is my community, not your community. Right, um, right. That turf wars can be a major barrier. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I guess like, you know, this, you know, just for the listener to better understand, like, yeah, there we we got this group of almost 20 people uh, mm-hmm. who are like directors of uh, community-based organizations that serve communities, rural immigrants, or you know people that that um, you know are, are have dental needs. University mm-hmm. of Florida, several chairs of the departments that are there, mm-hmm. um, and and it's just like all of us. I do think we have a shared interest in in helping marginalized groups. We do have resources. We we kind of have some some links into our communities. Um, and and we we you know are are very motivated and inspired to to do something together. We see that, that but but I think that the the how uh, is, is challenging. Like you That's said, exactly right. Yeah. To me, to me, time. You know, it, it's a big yes. it's a big factor. 
you know, um, we're already like maxed. Like, I don't know about you, but I feel busier than ever. Like, yes. ever. Like, and I was already <laughs> I busy before. No, yeah, I, I, I talked to yeah. other people and they're saying the same thing. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm drinking from a water hose or fire hose. And, 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 uh, you know, so I think like the, the time and the workload, like you said, sometimes like, you know, we're, we're responsible to, to, to meet certain deliverables for our mm -hmm. funding not be compatible with one another and reporting and all that other kind of stuff but you know i i it gives me hope that like you know, we're 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 interested you know our whys connect in many ways but the hows i think is the next step into to figuring out how to you know you know yeah. thread that needle you, know, you did a you, much better eloquent way of saying what i was just saying tony but i think you're totally right it, i see the hope i see the opportunity it's just kind of figuring out those systems of connection and how and um, collaboration that I think the dialogue is happening. It's just, you know, how do we kind of connect those dots now? You, you know, one of the, one of the things that was uh, shared in, in one of our meetings when we're getting that group together, and, I, and I've heard this in other circles too, so it's not necessarily unique. And, it, and, it, and it's uh, a, a, an internal challenge I've come up against, and I want to see how you process it um, yourself and, and kind of juxtapose it with how I kind of like deal with it. Mm -hmm. So, so um, you know, one 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 of the the things that I find challenging is we're we're talking about addressing issues that have like been here for the dawn of humanity. Maybe I don't know. Like it's just yep. been like how long are we talking about inequities in education for marginalized groups? How long are we talking about inequities in employment for marginalized groups? How long yep. are we talking about housing inequities, transportation inequities? economic inequities, mm -hmm. justice. And like, it's like, you know, like we're, we're inspired and we're motivated. And, and at the same time, like, you know, it's just like, has anything changed over all this time? We've had policies, we have these great interventions that are evidence-based and we're trying to implement. And, and like, and, and there's times where we're all have like frustrations over like, we're working so hard, but are we making a difference? Yeah. So A, like, how do you, how do you, how do you handle like, like that kind of like, sense of um challenge I, yeah. I'll, I'll say, you know and doing the work that we do i think the word that comes to mind to me tony is there's a sense of being jaded um there's a sense of being like what's the point anymore i'm not seeing, so I'm, hard. yeah i'm tr like it's frustrating and i think at the end of the day there's something inside of i think a few of us that just want to keep the fight going and are not willing to kind of let that go. And they see small glimmers of hope and change. Um, and I think that's what kind of keeps us, keeps me going personally and professionally. Um, but I also think what keeps our, I can't, I, I'm not going to speak for all public health professionals, but from my work with my other public health professionals together, I think we we, we get giddy over those little things. Um, and I think Tony, you're right. We've been talking about these same issues over and over and over and over again. And I think what I have learned as an as I'm becoming more into my, um, you know, ten plus years in the community in the field is that um, a lot of what we're dealing with is tied to policies and politics. And I hate to say that, but I feel like mm. that's the elephant in the room when we talk about public health. We don't yeah. talk enough about political power and structure and decisions that are being made at sure. multiple different levels and how that impacts the work that we do as public health, in my opinion. 
Um, that probably leads to the jadedness. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. It does. And I, you know, there's success stories out yeah. there all the time. And then there are challenges that come into play all the time. And I just think it's recognizing what battle can you fight and how can you just keep yourself um, afloat, but also enjoy life too. It, it, you know, there's yeah. this healthy balance of the two. Um, and I feel very fortunate to be able to have people in my life who keep me motivated. My Really, it's the team that I work with. They get me going every single day in terms of my work, my professional work and my professional career. And then personally, just having, I'm very fortunate to have a wonderful partner, um, a wonderful family, a wonderful sense of community. Um, and so I, I, I own up that that's a very lucky thing for me to have, but it keeps me going with what I want to do in my life. And um, I don't think the fight's over and I don't think it will ever be over. And I really, I look at my dad, right. he is in his late seventies. Right. He has been fighting this since he was young. And I just think that seeing how much he still does this, even in his seventies, he should be retired and enjoying life. Nope. He's doing this. This is what he wants to do is fight for this. So. That's beautifully said. You, you said so many powerful things there. You know, for me, I'm like, you know, I, I also think like, you know, what would it look like if we weren't working so hard? Yeah, we right. might not, like, we still are dealing with the same issues, but how much worse would they be if we weren't fighting for equal, you know, affordable, accessible housing or yeah. to close the academic achievement gap or to get people jobs or to ensure that they're, you know, receive healthcare or promote healthy lifestyle? So, like, how much worse would it be? Right. You know, in many ways, yeah. right? And, yeah. um, you know, and I, and I think, I do think like we all who are in it for the, for a lifetime, do need to, you know, be on guard for the, the 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 burnout, the jadedness. I mean, it's happening in droves, right? Since COVID, absolutely, been fleeing the public health and workforce. So, like, you know, it's we we do because we see people that are in crisis, mm -hmm. and, and we want to help them, and we do see the barriers to it, and we take that home with us, and then we see these, like you were saying, these political forces, you know, that come into it, mm -hmm. which are driven by business too, and bottom absolutely. line, absolutely, yep. absolutely, Tony, these yep. other kind of things, and, yep. and like. And, and and it can be could, and that seems like bigger than than and any one of us can conquer. For um, sure. And then we can yeah become jaded and you know then you know figuring figuring out what could keep keep us in there and and when you said success stories I, I was like yes because I feel like you know when when I started and I heard this from other people you know like like down the path of of wanting to serve other people um, one of the things that that I still hear other people saying as they're starting out is like if I can only just help one person. Yeah. It'll all be worth yeah. it. Yeah. Somewhere along the line, we helped that one person. Mm -hmm. It felt good. And we helped another and we helped another. And we are helping people. Um, but we're not like solving it for everybody. Yeah. And yeah. I think sometimes it's coming back to like, like you said, what are some of those successes? Yeah. That we've had along the way. And in remembering, yeah. yeah, we can just help one person. And we are. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure, I completely agree. Yeah. Well, I, I I think this is probably a good time for that uh, hard stop, unless you have a little more time in you. Unfortunately, I don't, Tony. I am sorry. Yeah. I have to get. To, I can keep um, going on. There's so many things. Oh, you and I could probably keep going stuff. on. I know we weren't yeah. able to cover everything. Um, yeah. I just I have a site visit in about 30 minutes, and I just need All to right. get prepared for that. So. Well, yeah. well uh, I don't want to hold you up from doing uh, the hero's work that you're doing there, Sarah. Thank you. It, it, it's material for another uh, time that we can, uh, you know, have another uh, conversation. Absolutely. 
this was great. I've always I always enjoy our conversations, Tony. Yeah, me I too. Really I, I, yeah, I, I, I want to acknowledge you uh, for being a, a champion in public health, uh, for for serving people, but but also uh, you know really teaching people that are going into the health field these important topics of health literacy, cultural competency, social determinants of health. You know, really being able to 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 really uh, look at this from all the different angles. You're in every you know circle and corner that I you know I'm looking to collaborate with and. You know, just very grateful to to be working alongside you, and uh, look forward to uh, continuing to do the good work. Of, Thanks so uh, much. Yeah, people. same same to you. I always feel like um, I'm glad to see the connections that we have in terms of the work that we do, um, and I, I think that the the community is very lucky to have the Center for Independent Living, and for you to be there because. Um, it, it's such an important piece of who we are. And so this, you know, same, same thoughts towards you. I think it's been great. And I, I look forward to the many more years of collaboration too, because I know it's not over. <laughs> All right, Sarah, until next time, we're going to take this onward and upward. You take care. Thank you. Bye everybody. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.